earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great men's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Well, I'm sure you realise that the uh, opening chapters of the book of Genesis are really foundational for all Christian thinking. It's from there we get our, uh, our Christian understanding of creation, the environment, of human psychology, of uh, sin, of judgment, of salvation, and we learn, begin to learn about the character and nature of God. And there is a pattern. It's a pattern of God's provision, of man's rebellion, of God's judgment, and also of God's grace as he works out various ways in a repetitive pattern about how this rebellious, judged human creature can actually be saved and reconnected with him. And this morning is uh, no, no exception. We have before us uh, man's sin, God's judgment, and we have a little hint of God's grace in choosing Noah and his family for uh, their salvation. What we'll see over the next two Sundays is the judgment of the flood. And that pattern, of course, runs throughout the Bible. We behave sinfully. God responds in judgment. But at the same time, he offers us a way of salvation. And our principal task in this life is to seize that salvation, to accept the rescue that he offers. So this morning we look at things under these headings of sin, judgment, and a hint of hope, a hint of salvation. But first of all, and uh, longest, sin. First one, when man began to increase in numbers on the earth, you know, sin also increased because you have more human beings. I mean, sin can't exist without human beings. The consequence of it, of it can, but not it in itself, because the nature of sin is rebellion against God by human beings, those who were created to be in relationship with him. And so in verses 1 and 2, we have a particular sin that God is not pleased with. We read, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they... Well, it's literally took, rather than married, they literally took any of them 
that they chose. Now, does that kind of pattern of temptation have any echoes with you? What happened in the garden? You know, they saw the fruit and were attracted by it. And then it says, they took it. You see, attracted, take. That's how temptation works. Now we have to ask, now why is this wrong? Why was it wrong that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took any as they chose? What is in it in that that uh, God would find offensive? Well, I think two things immediately stand out. The first is surely that they were polygamous. It, that means they have more than one wife. And it says the sons of God married any of them they chose. So now, no doubt, when they'd had enough of one wife, um, they just went on and got another one. The other feature of the marriage that didn't meet with God's approval is that they were mixed marriages. When I was at university, it was in the days of uh, Idi Amin was the ruler of Uganda at the time, and he was giving a pretty hard time to not only those who were ethnic Indians, but also many uh, ethnic Africans too. And my cleaning lady was called Sally, and she was a Ugandan exile. She fled here with her husband and young children. And she would sort of waggle her finger at us and say, you marry somebody from your own tribe. Now, she was not being kind of in any way racist. She was actually imparting what was a pretty good bit of advice. Because, of course, there's nothing wrong at all in having kind of uh, interracial marriages. I mean, often some of the most beautiful people result from, from them, if you think about it. Nothing wrong with that at all. But, of course, there are more difficulties. I mean, if those of us who are, who are English, who um, are brought up in the same kind of class in society with the same sort of background, sometimes find that we have great misunderstandings, such as who's going to water the indoor plants, for example, because, uh, you know, in my family, my... My mother may have done it, and in my wife's family, her father may have done it. And when you first get married, you have a lot of dead plants because you've never actually kind of discussed who should water them. You take so many things for granted, and you have to actually work out. Just imagine if you can't speak the same language to start with. Imagine the culture is so different. It's a lot more difficulties. But... Um, it's not racial or ethnic mix that the writer has in mind here. In fact, there isn't a consensus amongst scholars as to what the mix was between. It's not at all, too, all clear as to precisely who the sons of God are. But let me just briefly share you, with you the options. Some, like the Good News Bible, for example, because it's a paraphrase, opt for the first one that it's uh, diabolical, it's fallen angels. It assumes that angels, spiritual and supernatural beings, married human women. That was the view of some early church writers. Uh, there are some who take that view today. Um, there are examples of that kind of thing, of course, in the mythology of the ancient world. And in their favor, they claim that the sons of God 
is in the Bible sometimes a euphemism for angels. However, it is also a euphemism for human men. For example, Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. And it seems to many that the whole idea of angels having intercourse with women and producing some kind of hybrid is totally unimaginable. In fact, the reformers like John Calvin thought the whole idea was absurd. And you can see why they think that. And I tend to agree with it. Take Matthew 22:30, for example, which uh, tells us that there is no marriage in heaven. And that would seem to indicate that angels have no sexual desire. The idea about angels, fallen angels, having intercourse with human women comes from a writing called the Book of Enoch, which was written in the second century BC. It never made it into um, the Jewish Apocrypha or the Christian Apocrypha. In other words, Jewish and Christian churches apart, I think, from the some branch of the Ethiopian church. Um, don't recognize it in any way as scripture. It's called what they call a pseudepigrapha, which means that it's written um, under an assumed name. In this case, they pinched the name of Enoch, who was a descendant from Adam uh, in the early chapters of Genesis, although it was written in the second century BC. And it's rather um, kind of bizarre tale. doesn't sound to me like a good foundation for a significant bit of biblical uh, thinking. The second and more modern view is that irrespective of whether man evolved from apes or whether he was a special creation by God, there were obviously ape-men-like beings around at the same time. So maybe these hominids, as they're called, mated with humans. So before Homo neanderthalensis, Neanderthal man died out about 40,000 years ago, maybe Homo neanderthalensis got together with Homo sapiens and again some kind of hybrid was produced. Actually, in fact, if you're European, two to four percent of your DNA is Neanderthal. But of course, that may, might just mean that we and they share the same ancestors. Well, God would certainly have disapproved of that since um, bestiality is clearly condemned in the Bible. Homo sapiens are only to mate with Homo sapiens. So, in our cleverness, we must never mix human sperm and human eggs with those of animals. But anyway, interesting as the idea is, the language of the passage doesn't support it, and it doesn't seem to me that it would have possibly been in the minds of the writer at the time, because it also specifically says, most convincingly, men and daughters. Human beings are what the writer has in mind. So the third view is the view of many today and in church history that what's being referred to is the merger in marriage between the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. The greats of biblical scholarship, Chrysostom, Augustine, Calvin, all take this view. Now we've seen in chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis how the Sethites were the children of God. 
and how through them the divine image in man was passed on, whereas with Cain and his clan, they were judged and banished from the presence of God. And we're also just about to come to the flood where God judges the whole of the known world. Perhaps he has to do this because through marriage, the corrupting influence of the Cainites has thoroughly infected the Sethites so that they all may come under the judgment of God. And if this is the case, it is a familiar story. Later, throughout Israel's history, there is a long, um, a long track record of them disobeying the commandments of God and intermarrying with the Canaanites and various otherites who lived around the Holy Land. In the New Testament, Christians are told quite clearly not to be unequally yoked, not to be married to unbelievers. To Christian widows, the Apostle Paul encourages them to remarry, um, but only in the Lord. Now, like most men, the Sethites could see better than they could think, and they chose wives just on the basis of looks. But these men made a great mistake. It was great if a man has a wife who displays outward beauty, but inward beauty, due to having the character and presence of the Lord within them, is a far better bet. So, here we have an example that's repeated throughout the Bible that where man drifts away from God, sooner or later, it affects his whole family life, and that that suffers. Now, God's verdict on this is in verse 3. My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. That's not a judgment on how long a man could possibly live, it's actually telling them how long before the flood is going to take place. God says to them, I'll give you 120 years to come to your senses. If you've not come to your senses by then, then I will act, and that will be it. God is giving them a deadline. God's Spirit is going to carry on convicting them of sin. He's going to kind of chip away at man's conscience. He's still going to uh, tap the rebellious heart. But if man comes, carries on resisting the spirit of God, then that will be it. Sometimes you do have to give people deadlines. I had a relative many years ago, younger than me, and he was having girlfriend problems. She got him just there. And he was well and truly kind of hooked and trapped. She was able to blow hot and cold. She was pretty certain that he'd always come back to her if she happened to be off with him at the time. So he was being med led a merry old dance. The only solution for him, as far as I could see, was to give her a deadline. Either they were serious and committed, 
or that was the end of it. You have to do that sometimes in order to sort things out. Or the agony will just go on. And that's what God decided to do. He gave them a deadline. Verse 4 tells us that the Nephilim were in existence. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the Nephilim are the offspring of um, the Sethites and the Cainites. It just tells us the Nephilim are in existence. There is one other verse in Numbers which tells us about the Nephilim, which is many, many thousands of years uh, later. Seems they were big guys, tough guys. Some people think the etymology, you know, the origin of the word means that they were kind of fallen or they fall upon, which might mean either way that they were kind of bandits who kind of roamed around in the kind of uninhabited areas preying on people. But in all honesty, we don't really know anything about them. Well, verse 5 tells us more about man's general wickedness. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil all the time. Man's sin was so great because it was deep-seated. It was right at the very heart of man, at his will, every inclination. Is also so great because it was so extensive. It covered every thought he had. And it was great because it was continuous. It was evil all the time. Now Christians believe not that man only does bad things. That's obviously not true from our observation and experience. But what it does teach is that every area of a human being's life is somehow distorted by their inward inclination away from God. And that's what we mean by original sin. And we're all tainted by that. And what was in the heart came out in action, verse 11. We, uh, sorry, that's not right. Well, yes, it is, yes this is verse, yeah, verse 11. We read how the uh, world became corrupt and violent. Why? Because man is basically disconnected. He's disorientated. He's disconnected from God and he's orientated away from God. He is not focused on God enough. He is quite literally doing his own thing. Well, the passage moves from sin to judgment with a little hint of hope in the last verse. So verses 5 to 8. First of all, God saw everything, verse 5. He is omniscient. He knows everything. There is nothing he doesn't know. And then he grieved that he'd ever made human beings. He was pained at what mankind had done, verse 6. His heart was filled with pain. Next, he decides he will have to act as judge. All this wickedness has got to stop. It may be out of vogue, but it's very clear in Scripture that God is a God of judgment. 
And he says he will have to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. He wants to end the pain and the suffering. But it was not all gloom and doom. There is a hint of hope. There was Noah. Not that he was necessarily any much better than them. He wasn't perfect. But God had favor on him. God exercised grace. God was going to judge the rest, but save Noah and his family when the judgment came. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, we learn quite a bit about man and God. I think we've learned something about man and about his basic problem, which is his rebelliousness against God, and as a consequence, he does sinful things. Everyone can see that this world's got problems. Many think that uh, more education, more psychological understanding, more social and economic equality, more law and order will do the trick and solve the problem. And the truth is that they will probably all help Depends what spin you put on education and some of these other things, but basically they probably will help. But none of them are radical enough. What is needed is a deep-rooted change of heart in human beings. It's there that the corruption lies. And only a radical solution that changes that will solve man's problem. And just as Jesus said, a corrupt tree cannot bear good fruit, so a new tree is needed. So to a new heart created by a new birth is needed for man to do new acts of love and justice. But we've also learnt about the nature of God. So often our God is a lopsided God. Either he's a, a nasty God, always condemning everyone, or he's a rather kind of goody, benign God who's nice to everybody in the end. Well, the true God is neither Satan nor is he Santa Claus. He is a perfect balance. His character is both love and justice. And here we see very clearly in verses 3 and 7 that God is a God of judgment. But we've also seen that he is a God of grace. He gives them 120 years to change their ways, to come to repentance for their past sin, and to trust God and be saved. And quite undeservedly, he will save Noah and his family. And today we're in the same situation God has fixed today when he will judge the world. And now in this period of mercy, he calls everyone to repent of their rebellion against him and the sins that they commit and the damage that those sins do, both to us, to others, and which pain him because they mar our relationship with him. Meanwhile, though, he's exercising patience, quietly, 
waiting for us to accept the offer of salvation before the day of judgment arrives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, insight into both your character and into your way of relating to us and also the insight into our fallen human nature. We see very clearly this pattern of provision, rebellion, judgment, and grace. And we recognize from this, this event, this time of old, how we are living today. And we pray that we would all respond to your grace and accept your offer of salvation. In Jesus' name.